Welcome to the Hemonc Pulse, the podcast that educates everyone about all things hematology to keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology. I am your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I couldn't be happier to host Dr. Miser Shadman from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center at the University of Washington to talk all things chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's a pleasure to be with you, Miser. Let's start by just introducing you to folks who probably don't know you. And I, in full disclosure, I just saw on LinkedIn, you are an endowed chair. So you, you're allowed to brag about this for a couple of minutes. Thank you very much. It's it's a real honor to be here. And thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited. I, uh, I am a CLL and lymphoma physician. I'm uh, a clinical investigator. I'm at the University of Washington and Fred Hodge Cancer Center in Seattle and involved in number one, seeing patients and as a clinical investigator involved in clinical trials from phase one, phase one to phase three and also CAR-T therapy. I'm a disease-focused person and lymphoid malignancies with a focus on CLL. So it's a great honor to be here and excited to discuss some of the new uh, presentations and publications in CLL and, you know, so great to be here. Tell, tell us about the endowment a little bit. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. This is the Innovators Network Endowed Chair and uh, a group of very uh, amazing and generous uh, donors that work with Fred Hutch have made this possible. And basically for a three-year term, I will have the opportunity of using this funding to uh, pursue studies that are going to be used as a basis for future, hopefully bigger grants. So being a CLL person, my plan is to use it uh, in CLL. It's it's not limited. I mean, it uh, of course as a, as a lymphoma physician, it's. Yeah. Uh, but my plan is to kind of use it in CLL. And I have. Hey, before we get into the science, did you always know you wanted to do CLL? It kind of started during my fellowship and um, working with my mentor at the time and uh, getting involved in some of the some of the studies that he was running, and then. Later on, I took over the clinical work and started to be more and more active. Uh, so I always knew I wanted to be a hemolignancy physician, but kind of switching to CLL happened later during my fellowship time. Well, it's great. You're doing wonderful. And we'll put a link in the podcast in your recent review article in JAMA, um, uh, which I'm sure was uh, no, e no, no easy feat. So congrats on that. So Miser, what I've tasked you is something a little bit impossible to summarize in 20-25 minutes, but we're going to try. We're going to tease listeners a little bit about what's happening in CLL. Um, I guess just to level set, today in 2023, are there patients, first of all, in the first-line setting that you would give chemotherapy to, and you do not give the we can't call them novel anymore. You do not give the, you know, targeted uh, molecular oral treatments. Well, great question. And my short answer would be no, uh, assuming that there is access to you know, novel or non-chemotherapy agents. I think now with uh, a number of clinical trials showing that novel agents, either BTK inhibitors or combination of venetoclax and uh, CD20 antibody obinutizumab are superior to different basically schedules and treatments uh, that include chemoimmunotherapy. I think using chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy these days would not be uh, reasonable. Now, we're 
parts parts of the world or places where there's no access to these novel agents, we can talk about what chemotherapy regimens would make sense. But here in the US, yeah. I would not yeah. use it. Makes sense. So what is happening on the horizon? I think everybody knows about Vinitoclax and Ibritinib and a couple of other the BTKIs. You were recently at the EHA, European Hematology Association, and you went to the Lugano meeting, which is one of the best meetings in lymphoid malignancies out there. What can you tell us what struck you in terms of new treatments? What's on the horizon? Yeah, great question. I think at EHA, Lugano, and even before that at ASCO, we had a number of uh, presentations and some publications that uh, came along and the data was not necessarily presented in, in those meetings. I would put them in two categories. We have had some interesting long-term follow-up from studies from, from what we already use in practice. And I think those long-term follow-up studies are extremely important. For example, I start by using the CLL14 study, which was updated uh, again by the colleagues at the German CLL study group. Dr. Al-Sawaf uh, nicely presented the six-year follow-up of uh, CLL14. And you know, as, as we know, this is a time-limited therapy combination of venetoclax and obinutuzumab. The study compared it to corambucil and obinutuzumab really that the point is not the 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 efficacy versus the chemoimmunotherapy is really what we discuss with patients in clinic. I think at six years, knowing that more than half of the patients are still progression free and alive, this is an amazing uh, piece of information to share with patients. So fifty three percent six year PFS all comers and. I think that's something that I use in daily basis in my clinic when I talk to patients about time-limited therapy in the front line. Another important update from that study, which was presented for the first time, was the fact that on the CLL14 study now, unmutated IGHV is independently predictor of an inferior PFS. Now, we used to see those curves being uh, separated, but... Um, when investigators from the from the study adjusted um, that for DEL17P, for example, the thought was that uh, the, the impact goes away, but now with longer follow-up, uh, IGHV mutational status seems to be independently associated with an inferior PFS, which is in line with what we saw with CLL13 study, which was recently published. So uh, unmutated status is is something to discuss with patients. I, I don't think in clinical practice that would be a reason not to use a fixed duration therapy. Having three years of disease-free and treatment-free is still clinically meaningful, but I think it was important to see that follow-up. Uh, and they also reported on second malignancies that it's another important uh, safety uh, information that we need to follow <clears throat> uh, with, with these studies. And there seems to be a numerical difference between Ven Obino versus uh, the control arm, uh, but nothing in terms of a specific types of malignancies that would really uh, raise a concern or be a red flag. But I think in general, uh, it was nice to see this six-year update from the CLL14 study. Meiser, oftentimes when people talk about uh, uh, limited time therapy, and just for listeners, this is limited time therapy regardless of any molecular uh, like MRD. So you just like give one year, two years, three years. It's not that you are checking... MRD, let's say, and deciding based on that to continue or not, right? Very great point. Yeah, the study was not MRD guided. So uh, everybody stopped at the end of treatment. Now, the end of treatment MRD status predicts the duration of PFS on this study. Now, the question that comes up 
pretty often is that, okay, what happens if you treat someone for one year and they're still, they have detectable disease by whatever MRD test that you use? In my practice, and I don't think we should be acting on that. I mean, MRD, we know in hemalignancies is most of the time a proxy for a more difficult disease to treat and not necessarily something that we would just treat to convert. And there's there's no data to suggest that adding to the duration of therapy would actually improve the outcomes. I think this may be the right time to talk about an ongoing important study that is happening currently in US and outside of the US, the MAGIC trial, which is using a combination of ecalabrutinib and venetoclax as the investigational arm versus venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And of course, that's that's one question the study is trying to answer. But the second question is, in patients who don't achieve an undetectable MRD at the end of one year, that study continues treatment for an additional year. So that study will be able to answer some of the questions we have today. But to answer your question, yes, everybody stops treatment at the end of one year. The post-treatment MRD status has prognostic value, but not something to act on based on the data we have today. You mentioned something about uh, the venetoclax acalabrutinib. So it's it's hard for me to hear that without um, uh, asking you to discuss the various uh, BTKIs for listeners, because you know, at some point there was only ibrutinib and now there's so many. Um, how do you approach um, the the selection of BTKIs, I guess, in CLL? Yeah, great point and that, very good introduction to the next uh, abstract that I, I was planning to discuss. So very briefly, of course, ibrutinib, we call it first generation BTK inhibitor, a great drug, really changed the treatment landscape. However, not so specific to BTK. So by targeting uh, other uh, off-target enzymes, you know, adverse events uh, are uh, a common reason for drug discontinuation. So then we have second-generation BTK inhibitors, as we call them, acalabrutinib and xanobrutinib. They work the same. They have the um, uh, kind of the as as a covalent or irreversible BTK inhibitor. They their efficacy is similar to ibrutinib, but they're more specific to BTK, and therefore their adverse event profile is much uh, better and favorable compared to ibrutinib. You know, in two head-to-head trials in the relapse setting, both ecalabrutinib and xanobrutinib have been shown to have a better safety profile compared to ibrutinib, again, in the relapse setting and different studies. Ecalabrutinib was non-inferior to ibrutinib, and xanobrutinib uh, showed superiority in terms of efficacy to ibrutinib in the relapse setting. So, but overall with, with those studies, I think the field has moved away from ibrutinib when possible. And if there's access, we will be using one of the two uh, second generation BTK inhibitors and xanobrutinib and acala. And I mentioned the difference in terms of efficacy that we saw in Alpine with xanobrutinib. Now, again, the terminology could be different, but then we have non-covalent BTK inhibitors. These are drugs that still block BTK, but they're not specifically um, going for the target that the, the first three drugs go. And they don't, uh, they, they use this network of kind of a connection to the BTK enzyme and not necessarily to the C481S area. And therefore they can work regardless of having a mutation in the binding site to the BTK. And that's the principle why drugs like pertubrutinib could be effective in patients who 
have progressed on ibrutinib, calabrutinib, and zanabrutinib. And, you know, pirtubrutinib has been shown in the Bruin trial to be effective in these population. And recently, uh, Anthony Mado and colleagues pres uh, published their uh, paper in the post-covalent BTKI setting in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think it was last week. So that would be, again, some would call it a third-generation BTK inhibitor, uh, or non-covalent would be probably the better name uh, or or a reversible binder to BTK. Another another drug in this category would be nemtabrutinib, which is also in development. And uh, then we have this uh, upcoming group, and I don't know, some I've heard some calling it fourth generation, the BTK degraders. And these are drugs that basically take the whole enzyme out without really having to uh, kind of attached to any specific area. And these drugs are uh, kind of uh, further behind in development and are being studied at the moment. So these are kind of the different generations of BTK inhibitors. Uh, at Lugano and EHA, we had the updated uh, uh, study uh, or updated follow-up, extended follow-up from the Sequoia study, which uh, basically, uh, to, as a reminder, Sequoia was a study which was done in frontline CLL in patients with no prior treatment. And these were patients who were not FCR candidate by definition. So they were either older than 65 or had comorbidities and they got randomized. If they didn't have DEL17P, they got randomized to either receiving monotherapy with xanobrutinib or they received bendamustin rituximab. If they did have 17P deletion, they received xanobrutinib monotherapy. Uh, we already knew from the Sequoia trial that xanobrutinib was superior to bendamustine and rituximab for PFS in, in the entire cohort. We also knew that in unmutated IGHV, of course, that benefit was seen, but there was no difference in the mutated population. Now, with this current presentation and update, we showed that patients with mutated IGHV, and these are historical responders to chemotherapy. Even in that population, xanobrutinib was superior to bendamustin rituximab. So that was one important update. I think what's also important is the, the DEL17P cohort in that study. With, the, with uh, 47 months of follow-up, patients with DEL17P on monotherapy with xanobrutinib had a PFS rate of 80%. And this is the largest PTK inhibitor study that treated uh, patients with DEL17P. So Basically, the conclusion would be independent of the IGHV mutational status, and uh, DEL17P xanobrutinib continues to perform really well, and there was no new safety profile. AFib rate was pretty low, actually, in an unplanned comparison to the BR population. The rates were not different. I think it was around 5%. So, again, uh, another follow-up, but an important one in terms of discussion there's a lot to unpack here, but probably the most pressing question that comes to my mind, and it's probably going through the minds of some some listeners, is pretty much almost every patient that you are going to study today in the relapse setting. Let's say Dr. Shadman is going to design a trial for relapse disease. I mean, these patients must probably receive a BTKI and a venetoclax at some point. What you're saying, these newer BTKIs, they're effective in the second-generation BTKI and venetoclax failures? Well, there's not much data with nemtobrutinib. So pirtobrutinib, uh, the answer is yes. So the, the Bruin study included patients who, by definition, everybody was BTK inhibitor exposed. Right. And close to 75% of these patients were BTKI refractory, and around 25 I think, was 
quarter of patients were BTKI intolerant. And a very high percentage of patients were also BCL2 inhibitor exposed. Mm-hmm. So the, the data, like the PFS of around 19 months was in all comers. And when you look at, and they did a nice job kind of reporting on patients who were on both BCL2 inhibitors inhibitor venetoclax or BTK inhibitors or only on a BTK inhibitor and no venetoclax. The PFS curves look pretty similar, plus minus, I think three months. Now, it's a whole different discussion in terms of the shape of the curve and there's no yeah, plateau. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, we can talk about that. I'm more than happy to talk about it. And yeah. whether or not pirtubrutinib is a destination in that setting or a bridge to something else, we can talk about yeah. it. But yes, in terms of efficacy, the response rate of around 70%, and a reasonable PFS in a space that we don't have anything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's where we used to use PI3 kinase inhibitors because there would be the third line, but none of the PI3 kinase inhibitor studies included anyone who had prior BTK inhibitor or right, venetoclax. Right. And guess what? Today, as you mentioned, all the third lines are exposed to one or two other classes. So PIR2 is a important is an important addition to our toolbox. And how we use it and the strategy is a different discussion, but yeah, yeah absolutely. Are there any new BCL2 inhibitors aside from venetoclax? Yeah, so I, I think there are at least, I'm, I'm sure there's more than two. The two that I'm aware of is, uh, I think one is uh, Lysaftoclax, or maybe pronouncing it wrong. Matt Davids uh, uh, presented some data last ASH, and that's under development. The other drug, uh, Sunrotoclax, or uh, it used to be BGB-111417, I believe. It's the Beijing molecule. And there was some data at the pr- previous ASH. And, you know, they're both in clinical trials. And, um, you know, I, I I think we will hear more about them in yeah. the upcoming meetings. Uh, so... So what what else did you did you see in terms of novel therapies? These are the, the two... Uh, was everything else like now allogeneic transplant, CAR-T, or are there other molecules? I think the the other big data that was presented was something that Tanya Siddiqui presented at ASCO and Lugano, and that was the lysocell, uh, the, the CD19-targeted CAR for uh, relapse refractory CLL. Like pirtubrutinib, that treatment or that drug is covering a, an unmet need, which is, the, in my opinion, the, the post-BTKI and venetoclax space at least. So just as a quick background, Lysocell is a CD19-directed autologous car. It's it's approved for large cell lymphoma in second line and beyond. But um, for CLL, this study um, showed that in this high-risk population, the treatment could be effective. The, if you go by IWCLL criteria, which in parentheses, is not the right way of looking at CAR-T efficacy in CLL. Uh, the, the CR rates are around 18%. But again, we know from prior literature and work that was done uh, in Seattle and Penn and other places that really what you need to look at is the MRD status at the end of CAR-T therapy and maybe in combination with PET scan. And we, when you look at the MRD negative versus positives, there is a wide kind of uh, separation between the curves and uh, patients who achieve an undetectable MRD status after CAR-T, they can have a very reasonable PFS after CAR-T. So that data was was very important. I think 
when we talk about CAR T and in indolent lymphomas, including CLL, safety profile is extremely important. This is not like your second line large cell lymphoma. Uh, they did report a very favorable favorable safety profile. Grade three or more CRS was around nine percent, and grade three or four neurotoxicity was around, I believe, nineteen percent, which is pretty acceptable for for such a difficult disease to treat and. You know, the reason these uh, safety profile numbers are important is that it, it is true that we may get, um, by the way, pirtubrutinib or lysocell are not currently approved for CLL. I'm I'm pretty sure they will be seeking such uh, approvals, and I think our patients need those. But the key is that, yes, you can get a drug approved in the third line, but the, the question is, can you bring them to the earlier lines of therapy? And I think one of the concerns with CAR-T therapy was that, do you really want to expose some someone to a high rate of toxicity if you have other great options. So I think with lysocell, we need to see where it lands in terms of the approval and uh, same thing with PIR2. And, uh, you know, we'll have more discussions about sequencing and combinations. Maybe my last question to you, uh, Mizar, is uh, what what uh, what frontline therapies in clinical trials, not, you know, um, that you're keeping close eye on, what is happening that we should expect maybe next ash or the ash after that the the CLL community is waiting in anticipation in the frontline setting. It's, yeah, it's great. It's, it's tough way place to design trial. I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> yeah. So that yeah, you're absolutely right. I think. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, there there were two cooperative group studies. One from the ECOG group, the other one from Alliance, and they both targeted first line space. Uh, comparing ibrutinib and obinutuzumab as the control arm versus uh, venetoclax, ibrutinib, and obinutuzumab as experimental arm. ECOG was for younger, healthier population. Alliance was for like less fit patients. We actually had a presentation at ASCO showing that the triplet was not necessarily better than the ibrutinib, obinutuzumab. There were some deaths related to covid which uh, you know that that was presented as one of the potential reasons. So, with that introduction, I mean the ECOG study is something that has not been presented or published. So that may be something that we should be looking for. There is a, a, a three-arm study that uh, AstraZeneca is running uh, obinutuzumab with acalabrutinib and venetoclax versus acalabrutinib venetoclax versus chemotherapy. A three-arm study is a registration trial that will potentially uh, we, if, if positive, may lead to having that combination approved in the first line. The MAGIC trial is ongoing. I briefly mentioned that. It's a, a CALA plus VEN versus VEN OBINO. Again, that study is currently enrolling, so will not be, I don't think we expect it to be presented anytime soon. And there are other studies in, in uh, planning. I mean, we have novel BTK inhibitors, and now we have novel BCL2 inhibitors. And, you know, uh, some of these drugs happen to be made by same company. So they're going to be looking at combinations of novel BCL2 inhibitors with, with a novel BTKI versus uh, control arm. So I think I, I think the future will be looking at a combination of a BTKI plus BCL2 inhibitor. I, I think the field is trying to move away from adding a CD20 antibody to those and probably coming up with an all-oral chemotherapy-free and time-limited in the first line and then whether or not it's MRD guided or not, that's that's another question. I lied. I have one more question. Last question, I promise. And then I need to let you go and I need to go as well. But I, I, it's two scenarios, just random. A patient walks into your office 
who is seeing you untreated CLL, good risk disease or intermediate, you know, 13Q deletion, let's say, not symptomatic, requires no therapy. What do you tell this patient their median survival could be? And then the same exact patient, again, doesn't require therapy, but they have 17P deletion. Uh, you know, when I was uh, seeing patients and in training, 17P deletion was were the highest risk. And obviously, you know, 13Q were the best risk. So assuming you have those two patients coming into your clinic, they're not symptomatic, so you're not going to treat them in standard clinical practice, but they're curious about their median survival. Are you able to give them a rough ballpark or it's impossible? Okay. Well, I don't know if I can give exact number, but uh, I would say a few things. Uh, first of all, the models that we use to predict survival and the best one we have is the CLL-IPI. It's something that was developed during the chemoimmunotherapy era and is not validated with the novel agents. And we have not been able to do that, mainly because a lot of fact, many of the factors that are within that model, we don't routinely check in the community. So I don't think I can give an exact number, but you can't argue with the fact that I just mentioned that at four years of treatment with xanobrutinib, you have 80% PFS rate. Amazing. So, amazing. you know, and that curve looks really amazing. Same thing with acalabrutinib in Elevate yeah. TN, same thing with ibrutinib. I think BTK inhibitors have really changed the first line treatment of 17P deleted or P53 apparent patients. And those curves look much better than what we see with venetoclax-based therapy. So I, I don't know if I can give a number, but I tell them that they their survival is much better than what Dr. Naban would, would have told them 10, 10 years <laughs> really, ago. For sure. Yeah. So one thing maybe as a closing remark is that there is an ongoing study by SWOG that targets patients with high-risk CLL who don't meet the indication for treatment. So this study evolved, led by Debbie Stevens, is uh, looking for patients or kind of targeting patients with high-risk disease by CLL-IPI, and patients get randomized to receive treatment early at the time of diagnosis. They receive venetoclaxib and or they wait until they meet the indication for treatment. So the second patient you mentioned, they, even if they don't yeah. have indication for treatment, I would sit and really talk seriously about maybe considering yeah. a study like that. Dr. Miser Shadman, always a pleasure to see you. Congratulations, all of your work. Congratulations on the success in the CLL field, CLL community. And we're going to have you back again, hopefully after Ash, to tell us a little bit more. Thank you so much for coming on the Heman Pulse. Thanks for having me.